The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Anyone? Is the volume good for you? It's a little loud for me, so maybe let's see if. So let's see, does that still work? Okay. So certainly uh, my thoughts are with the people up in Sonoma, Santa Rosa. People I know up there are affected by the fire, and perhaps some of you know people up there. Uh, the, the, those of you know who the Abhayagiri, it's a Buddhist monastery up there that's kind of affiliated to us. With, and um, they had to evacuate because the, one of the fires was coming into their valley. And um, most of their buildings could be rebuilt quickly. <laughs> they, a lot of the monks live in the forest in little huts, little teeny little cabins. And so um, some of those can be rebuilt. So um, with them on my mind, people up north and people in Las Vegas and people in Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands and Caribbean and all over, boy. I kind of dedicate this talk. So I wanted to uh, teach you, if you're teachable, a, a poem. The Buddha's a Poem of Peace. And um, the poem goes like this. Hatred never ends with hatred. By love alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. Hatred never ends with hatred. By love alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. So this particular poem goes back to the Buddha, attributed to the Buddha. And it has appeared and reused at different times in the history of Buddhism. And I wanted to tell you about the poem a little bit and about some of its occurrences. Sometimes it has appeared. Um, so it's often used in times of conflict. And all too often conflicts are hostile and conflicts give rise to hatred and conflicts perpetuate hatred. It's very easy to have division between people and there's conflict. Um, for these conflicts to come to a true end, love and friendship are needed. And so how does that, how do we do that? One of the ways is to really understand hatred. One of the principles of Buddhism is to Understand the very thing that maybe you want to let go of. And uh, not let go of something too quickly, not until it's understood. Because if you really understand something, then you understand why you're letting go, why you're stepping away from it. You understand the forces that bring it about. Um, so we want to kind of certainly bring hatred to an end. With hatred, others are viewed as obstacles or foes, as wrong or evil. Those who hate are always blind 
in not seeing the full humanity of those who are hated. Hatred perpetuates itself. To end hatred, one must learn to love wisely and strongly. Those who love wisely see clearly because they know the full humanity of others, including both the good and the bad. Love heals division as it views others as fellow companions in our human journey. Many conflicts dissolve in the warmth of love. Those that don't are transformed into problems to be resolved, not battles to be won. It seems that the first time the Buddha spoke, or the record we have the Buddha spoke when the Buddha said this poem, his community of monks were in conflict. And apparently it was quite hostile, the conflict, and they were split into two groups, and there was a serious division in a way it's called. And in Buddhism, in Buddhist monastic life, the splitting of the monastic community is considered to be one of the great um, transgressions that a monastic can do. And they were uh, uh, fighting over someone who perhaps had violated a minor monastic rule having to do with the proper way they, or the rules around how you use a toilet. And, um, and it wasn't clear what actually happened, I guess, and there was these two different camps and, and it got pretty bad. So the Buddha intervened and one of the things he said was he recited this poem. Hatred never ends with hatred. By love alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. And perhaps to put what they were fighting about in a little bit of perspective, he then added another verse. And the verse that he added goes, many do not realize that we here must die. For those who realize this, quarrels end. So, I think at least that does sometimes in the perspective of, but not always. Sometimes uh, quarrels represent something very deep that has to be worked out. I once went to visit a man who was dying and I thought in fact I'd come too late. The curtains were pulled and no one answered the door. And um, as I stood there for a while, and then the uh, last time I saw him, he was in a hospital bed in his living room and kind of in a semi-coma. So I thought I'd come too late. So I stood there by the front door and suddenly uh, the door swung open and he was standing there. Gil, I'm so happy to see you. It's like, for me, it was like, it was, <laughs> I don't know if I thought it was a ghost, but I was like, <laughs> I certainly was happy to see him. And so he, I came in and what had happened was they'd given them too much medication of something. That's why he was in a coma. He was still dying, but he was now on his feet. And, um, and he said, come in. And I sat down in the living room and within two minutes of being there, he said, um, uh, we, we, you know, you, you need to help us with marital counseling because I'm in conflict with my wife. And I kind of thought, what? You're about to die. <laughs> And, uh, you know, but I think sometimes important work has to be done. And so I, I, I talked with them and 
supported them through that. Um, but in these monastics, hearing the Buddha teach in their blindness, um, wouldn't listen to him. Not only didn't they listen with him, but they actually told him to go away, to let them work it out themselves. Um, and these monks, they only stopped their conflict when the laity, who provide f- food for the monastics, uh, were so appalled by what they saw that they stopped giving food to the monastics. So it was like, you know, many here did not realize we're, we here must die. Well, if you don't get food for a while, maybe that becomes clear. And so then they stopped and they reconciled and they repented and they apologized to the Buddha. So that was the first time that this poem was spoken. The second time it appears in Buddhist history is as a legend. And I don't, we don't know if this happened. But we do know there was a king in ancient India called King Ashoka. And King Ashoka was the, well, probably the first great emperor of India. And um, he ruled much of what we know of today as India. And um, he inherited most of it from his father. So it, he was also kind of an emperor. And, but he expanded it, and expanded it particularly with one very famous battle. It was famous because it was very gruesome. And a number of historical accounts, they talk about 100,000 soldiers lay dead on the battlefield. And um, so King Ashoka uh, went out to, uh, and this battle, he went out and walked through the battlefield. And, um, and this battle was a battlefield. What he saw there was enough to turn him off violence. And he became known as a much more proponent of nonviolence and good works. And he kind of changed his whole tune of how he was emperor. But one legend has him that he was walking across the battlefield, viewing the carnage of all these dead and dying there. And across the battlefield came a Buddhist monk walking peacefully, steadily, peacefully, calmly, just walking. And the contrast between the carnage and this peaceful monk caught his attention. And he went and asked the monk something. I'm not sure what he asked, but you know, what teaching makes you so calm or what teachings do you have or something? And the monk recited, hatred never ends with hatred. By love alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. And according to this legend, hearing, seeing the monk and hearing this teaching was a catalyst for this great king to renounce violence and war. In, in um, um, Jack Cornfield, who's a well-known Vipassana teacher here in America for the last 45 years or so, um, he went to, uh, to the border of Thailand and Cambodia at uh, about 40 years ago, 1976 or so, 77, when um, um, uh, a lot of Cambodians had left Cambodia because of the Khmer Rouge. And there was a massive genocide going on in uh, Cambodia. And they were in refugee camps right on the border. And uh, Jeff Cornfield went there at a time when uh, one of the great, one of the great uh, Cambodian monks, kind of the, Mah- the, the Mahatma Gandhi of Cambodia in some ways, um, went to this refugee camp, huge refugee camp, and um, started to build a bamboo temple. Because the Cambodians were, were Buddhists and they had left their, they'd been left their Buddhist country and 
they were lost in refugee camps. And apparently in the refugee camps, there were the Khmer Rouge still had some, even though they were outside of Cambodia, still somehow infiltrated, and he was threatened with death if he built this temple. So uh, they built this bamboo temple, or platform or something, and uh, 20,000 refugees came and sat all the way around. And uh, Mahagosananda began to give them teachings. And the teachings he gave was he recited over and over again in the ancient Buddhist language of Pali and also in Cambodian, hatred never ends with hatred. By love alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. So this is a powerful setting to give that kind of teaching over, just chanting it over and over again. And Jack Hornfield, who was there, said that uh, people cried. And imagine it was kind of maybe important to let their tears flow and this kind of released it people who had been through, you know, survived genocide. In modern times, <clears throat> uh, right up, th- uh, this particular verse, the Poem of Peace, had an important role in San Francisco in 1951 uh, in, w- in what's called the San Francisco Peace Treaty. After World War II, uh, Japan was a conquered nation and an occupied nation. They had surrendered, and the question was, what's supposed to be ha- become of Japan? And, um, and there were different ideas of what should become of Japan. Um, and so 48 countries gathered in San Francisco in order to discuss this, what to do with this conquered country. And uh, some people felt that it was very important never to let Japan be a sovereign nation again. We couldn't be trusted. They would raise a military, they'd go to war again. Uh, some people wanted that, uh, given what Jap- Japanese had done during World War II, that uh, really they had to stay a occupied country to kind of break their will to ever kind of fight again. There were all kinds of ideas. Also, there was a part of the function of this uh, conference in San Francisco at the Opera House was to uh, discuss what... Um, kind of compensation the Japanese should do for all the harm and damage they'd done uh, in, the, in the war. So there was, there was a disagreement of what to do, and there was going back and forth, and, and, um, and there, but there was one treaty that was being put forward that people were not agreeing to. And, um, and in this disagreement, the, uh, prime minister, the foreign minister of and then Ceylon of Sri Lanka stood up and gave a speech. And you can find the speech uh, on the web. Um, and uh, his name uh, was um, Jayawardene. I apologize for anyone Sri Lankan here if I mispronounce it, probably mispronounce it. Jayawardene. Apparently he was a, so, he got up and gave a speech. And he said that his country was entitled to ask for compensation for damage inflicted by the Japanese. However, he then said, and I'll quote him, we do not intend to do so, for we believe in the words of the great teacher, the Buddha, whose message has ennobled the lives of countless millions in Asia, that 
Hatred never ends with hatred. By love alone does it end. And then he ended his speech with a statement. We extend to Japan the hand of friendship and trust that her people and ours may march together to enjoy the full dignity of human life in peace and prosperity. When he finished speaking, his speech was received with thunderous applause. And then everyone agreed to sign the treaty that, gave, that allowed Japan to be a sovereign nation again. And uh, to commemorate this event, the Japanese uh, in Tokyo have a little monument with a plaque on it. And on that plaque, commemorating this event, and on that plaque they have written, hatred never ends with hatred, by love alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. And then the story, a little, kind of a little, maybe footnote to that story, that some of you know Nikki Mirgafori, who teaches here sometimes. She's now a Vipassana teacher in the Bay Area. Uh, her first contact with Buddhism was seeing that plaque. She was in Tokyo. So this, this, you know, hatred never ends with hatred. By love alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. So it keeps coming back around and around. And it's an ancient truth. I like to say, I mean, the ancient truth, maybe more like a universal truth. You know, it's not necessarily a Buddhist truth. Uh, it's something that many people, one way or other, have said as well. Um, uh, one example is Martin Luther King Jr., who said, Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. In addressing the civil rights and racist issues of his time, King also said, we, is, we must meet the force of hate with the power of love. Our aim must never be to defeat or humiliate the white man, but to win his friendship and understanding. No matter what side of a conflict one is on, without love, friendship, and understanding, a division persists that is the seedbed for further conflict and hostility. With love, not only can hate end, but the seedbed for hate disappears. And it's certainly sad to think of the work of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement did so much to break down some of the you know, some of the institutional prejudice of that time, but it didn't really, you know, create the love and friendship that's enduring to let us live together well. These three, love, friendship, and understanding, are not always easy to have. They require intention and persistence. They also take wisdom and discernment. The greater the conflict, the greater is the need for careful consideration of how to act and or what to say. Perhaps the single most important or useful thing we can do to cultivate greater love and friendship is to be mindful. Mindfulness allows us to see deeply into ourselves and thus into other humans. 
It is the vehicle in which greater understanding and empathy can show us clearly how much better off we are with love than with hatred. And that's a kind of very clear message we get when you're, you know, fully mindful of yourself, that you do a kind, we do a kind of violence to ourselves when we live with hatred. We have a number of stories in the recent decades that have come from people who went through something really bad. And the first time I heard this teaching was from a man who was held for seven years, an Englishman. He was a journalist and held by, um, uh, in captivity in cruel ways in Lebanon during the Lebanese war. And then he was finally released and he was asked if he had resentment towards his captors. And he said, no, because then I'd still be captured. So that kind of sentiment, you know, that uh, to release oneself of the hatred and resentment. So I have a tremendous faith in the power of mindfulness. I believe that the power of mindfulness has a lot to do with this ancient truth or universal truth that lives in our hearts. And if we pay attention carefully to what's going on here and we're not externalized in our divisions, externalized in our hatred, but really see here, there's a way in which going inward turns us inside out. And as we get turned inside out, we become aware through our hearts, become aware through our care, our empathy. It's kind of like this inside out movement of mindfulness. It uh, begins to dissolve the divisions, the hatred, the tightness, um, the crusts, the barriers, the, the, um, the contractions the, that we have that keep us from really seeing and feeling and knowing another as a full human being. And so we sit quietly, not just for our own sake, but we sit quietly to really begin healing some of the divisions that exist in our, in our world. Divisions that can't really persist if we're settled and peaceful and at ease and have the kind of sensitivity that comes with greater mindfulness. And I've, at least what I've found, is that uh, this kind of being turned inside out by mindfulness, one of the great gifts of it for me was um, that it, it turned itself into love, into loving kindness, into compassion. And um, my capacity to feel compassion, to feel empathy and love, that I've kind of, that really guide me in my life, I directly attribute to this very unusual thing of just sitting quietly and not moving. To really, and it's a way of being completely honest with oneself. It's a way of being completely, you can really meet yourself, confront yourself, find out what's going on here in a deep way. And, and you know, and so I did this and did this and did this and kind of got turned inside out, inside out over and over again. And slowly in that process, uh, I discovered love in a way I'd never known it before. Compassion, care, empathy. And I would say that it has a quiet quality to it <clears throat> because it comes from this quiet place. And uh, so it's not, you know, fiery love. It's not libido love. It's not... You know, it's not love that wants something, 
but it's this kind of love of a quiet, quiet place from inside, a settled place that kind of feels fulfilled in itself, feels complete in itself. It doesn't need anything because it just is. It's just, this, it's just the radiance or the flow or the sensitivity of what's here. But it takes a lot of work. It's a really good work to do, to somehow be able to... It's a very honest work. It's a very noble work. It's a very a significant work for our world to be able to somehow come to terms and work through our fears, to work through our hatreds, to work through our lusts, to work through our conceits that kind of keep us separate. And then, and uh, as we get turned inside out, the sense of being separate um, begins to shift and we start feeling more and more connected through our empathy, through our sensitivity. So, did you learn the poem? I repeated it often enough. Do you think we can recite it together? Yeah, should I do it once by myself and then you guys can do it the second time together? Yeah, should I do that? Okay, I'll do it once. Hatred <clears throat> never ends with hatred. By love alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. Okay, should we do it? Hatred never ends with hatred. With love alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. Great. So, um, I hope you never need it, this poem. But uh, now you have it handy. And maybe uh, you'll have occasion to speak it. Maybe you'll be walking across a battlefield. Maybe you'll be at a peace conference. Maybe you'll be with your in-laws. <laughs> <laughs> and it's good to remember. So that's what I have. Any comments or questions or anybody have other stories around this particular uh, verse, that poem that uh, you've heard? Because it gets recited often. I remember after 9-11 it was often, but Buddhists often recited it in different times. Yeah, if you could use the mic. I think there's a mic somewhere in the, over there. Here towards the stage, they have it. Hello. Um, I'm curious uh, how you know to stand your ground in a situation versus when to concede. Um, and is there such thing, I, I presume there is such a thing as uh, engaging in conflict on behalf of principles or even love. Yes. So I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah. You know, um, I, I knew someone, I know someone who uh, was involved in conflict resolution work. She was a, she would get involved in mediator and stuff. And um, <clears throat> uh, she said that when she heard there was conflict, it made her happy. 
And but the reason for that is she saw conflict as an opportunity. And as a mediator, she'd go in and she was trying to find the opportunity to really do some deep work and reconciliation and work with it. I th- and um, and uh, and then uh, she, uh, she started getting involved a little bit to help support some Buddhist organizations, Buddhist uh, groups, um, with their issues around conflict because uh, there's a history of a number of Buddhist groups of uh, being... Um, having a culture of being conflict avoidant. It's kind of unfortunate. You know, you know, that's one of the kind of shadow sides of some Buddhist groups. And so she would try to teach them, you know, they actually should, shouldn't just avoid conflict. There's a creative and useful way to engage in it. And so if we take the, way, if we take the hostility in the, out of the word conflict, but rather just say people have a disagreement at different points of view, uh, then uh, and have a sense that conflict can be uh, 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 is, a, is an opportunity is a full of possibility uh, then uh, maybe we're willing to stay in it but it takes uh, you know it takes it's not so easy and hopefully people are polite and to each other and kind to each other supportive of each other and not hostile but sometimes you can ask for that you can say you know we're in conflict I realize we have a different point of view what's going on here and uh, I'm, I'd like to engage in a deeper conversation with you, really find out what's going on, see if we can find common ground, see. But c- you think we can do this without hostility? And if they say no, then, I don't know about conceding, but you know, one option is to walk away. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that, you know, I don't know what, you're, what particular thing you're talking about, you know, what's, what the options are. Um, or to say, well, then, then I, can't, I can't concede. You know, if we can't have a conversation, you remain hostile, I can't concede, and we can't go forward. What are we going to do? Um, the, um, and I think it takes a lot of wisdom to know how to be in conflict well, effectively. And some people do conflict uh, training to learn how to do that and how to engage in a way that uh, you know, is productive. One of, the things, um, one of my favorite things about being in conflict with someone is um, sometimes I'm, you know, we're kind of some kind of conflict, different point of view about something. And then sometimes people will concede to me. Or, you know, okay, you know, whatever. And I say, no, <laughs> don't do that. It's important what we're doing. Let's hang in there. Let's keep, keep, keep exploring this. I know it's a little difficult, and, but let's keep doing it because there might be a third option. That if we hang in there and kind of, kind of keep going back and forth, something new will get born. And I've seen that happen many, many times for me. That, oh, and then there's a third option that was worked for both of us, that not even either one of us had, had realized until we hung in there and stayed with it. So, and then the other thing about conflict that I found really helpful is to um, tr- uh, really try to understand the position and the place of the other person in the conflict. And not only to understand but help them know that you understand them. Because if they understand that you understand them, uh, they don't have to try so hard. And they kind of, oh. And a lot of what people, some people want just to be understood or to be respected. I, I once mediated for some people who had a serious conflict. And, um, and the, person, the one person that was in a position of power and the people who didn't have the power came to me for help. And what was happening is the person in power didn't really know how to, was kind of basically abusing the power. And, you know, saying, you, you know, you're a little bit, you're off and you have it wrong and, 
you know, and I don't know what exactly, but, um, you know, it, it didn't go well for them. They felt not understood. They didn't feel... They came to me, and I didn't quite know what to do, but I listened to them, and I, and I let them know how well I understood them and how well I empathized with their concern. And 90% of their charge around the issue decreased just because someone listened to them and heard them. And um, so uh, we can do that to the people we have conflict with too. And, uh, and pe- sometimes we don't, people don't want to do it because we want our way. But I think that, some, I also have this belief that, or hope, that if we can offer understanding to someone else, then there's hope that they might be interested in, in understanding us. And that also makes go forward. So I'm just going on and on, but is this adequate as an answer, or do you have more about it you want to ask? Okay. Thank, thank you. Yeah, I didn't think it was an adequate uh, answer. Uh, because conflict and hatred are two different things. Yes. And um, I'm, I'm curious if there's any other time or space uh, or situation where hatred is um, accepted or okayed, or is there any, any place for hatred at any, all? Ha- any, hate. any place for hatred? I can't imagine there's any place for it. So, so the the experience there's, there's of always hate a, there's or always hatred. a better, there's always a better way than hatred. Right, but then a a temporary experience of hating it's at an extreme resistance to what is or or a situation or a conflict or something rises to I hate this situation or I hate this person yeah. that maybe temporary exists has does it only exist so we can get off of it I mean that's always the and sometimes we get caught in it. And I'm not sure I understand, but, but in terms of, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I, I can't imagine that hatred ever has a use. However, it does happen. And, um, and so that's one of the, one of the uh, benefits of mindfulness is that mindfulness itself does not hate hatred. But it, it, sits, and it sits with it and looks at it deeply. And Hatred has has roots within us, and so resistance, frustration might be one. Frustrated desire. Uh, some of it has to do with conceits of identity and who I am and who I'm building myself up with, who I th- feel threatened by. Many things. And so the advantage of turning towards hatred and really getting to know it and exploring it down to the roots is that we. Uh, I have a belief that it comes down. As we get into the roots of it, we come down to some places that are pretty, pretty important and valuable. And in that valuable place, we find some a whole other thing. I think we find love in the end, um, and it kind of gets transformed. So rather than seeing hatred as an enemy, as bad, as long as it's not acted on, it's a, it's a very, I think it's a very, see it as a very important door for getting to know ourselves. So in, in that sense, there's a place for hatred. But uh, to live with hatred and to act on it, to speak from it, I can't imagine that there's a place that has any use. Can you? 
Uh, no, other than what you described. I'm, I'm just wondering, is, is it whatever it is, a virtue or some experience or, or it, you know, exists only so we know the opposite. It's just because it's the opposite of love. Mm. And well, I'll give you my pop, pop psychology theory. <laughs> uh, I believe that things like hatred belong more to the surface mind, the mind that reacts to things, and that uh, love belongs to, uh, real love belongs to the depth, deep mind, or the deep heart. And so if we live kind of in the world of agitation, a lot of thoughts and ideas and, and, uh, and uh, conceit, and <clears throat> uh, you know, the world of agitated world, the depth of the mind, the surface mind, it's all too easy to get frustrated, all too easy to have hate and fear and many things. But if we can kind of, uh, that's <clears throat> if we can settle below that surface mind, or quiet that surface mind, then uh, there's a deeper wellspring inside <clears throat> that comes, which is a source of love. So I don't think it's, uh, it's uh, you know, one teaches the other or that they're a balanced duality somehow and they come together. I think they actually come from very different places in our mind. One's from an agitated mind and one's from a calm mind. Yes, please. Pass the mic over to the chairs. I've been saddened today by the fires in Napa, Sonoma. And I was just wondering if you could shed some light on why that happened. All the people that lost their homes mm. and died in that fire. Yeah. And I, I keep asking Buddha, where did that come from? Mm. Why did that happen? Well, I, I appreciate the question a lot. And I wish I could offer you appropriate answer to the question as you ask it. But <clears throat> what I'm able to do sitting here is to let you know something more personal. And that is that um, I tend not to ask, well, I did ask why, I was wondering if it was, it was an arson when I read that a lot of the fires started after 10 o'clock Sunday night. That seemed kind of a strange time for fire to start. <clears throat> so I did ask that kind of why. But, in, uh, but I don't ask that kind of why question so much, but rather I let my heart be broken. And then what can I do? I'm more interested in how I can, not, given that it's happening, how can we be supportive? How can we be helpful? How can we make a difference? Um, that's much more interesting for me. Thank you. Thank you. But I, I didn't really answer your question. If you want to ask no, again or a different way. Okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So, <clears throat> whether we're in conflict or we have occasion to <clears throat> support <clears throat> our neighbors or others, others, people, <clears throat> refugees from fires, from war, whatever, I think one of the great ingredients is love. And the warmth, the softness, the tenderness, <clears throat> the appreciation, the respect, 
the care <clears throat> that comes with love. And I hope that um, it's something that uh, we can tap into and, and have tremendous confidence in. The more confidence you can have in it, the easier it is to go through the world. May we all love. Thank you.